Very good morning to you, and thank you for the honor and privilege it is uh, once more uh, to be with you for uh, the ministry of the Word of God by the Son of God, as you and I together uh, look forward to coming under his life-giving ministry through his Word and by his Spirit today. Please, would you turn uh, with me to John's Gospel. It's nine, page 906 in the uh, Pew Bible. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. In fact, I'm going to ask us to look at a second passage after reading this one, uh, but I'll note that in just uh, a few moments. But our passage in John's Gospel is in chapter 19, uh, verses 28 to 30. Let us now hear these words, which are the words of the living God. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Ever blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is your word, and we are your people. And you have promised to bless, to guide, to protect, to preserve, and to bless your people through your word. We seek then the very things you have promised. We ask for the ministry of your most Holy Spirit, whose word this is. We ask that you would provide for us what you alone truly know that we need. And that as you give, we would return that gift in praise, in service, in obedience, in devotion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, the verses that we read, we have something of a, of a snapshot of a single moment in what is, generally speaking, in John's Gospel, the central event in the history of the world. And that central event in the history of the world includes within it this single moment of transition from all that was to all that would be A point of transition which John tells us takes place by way of a cup. A cup which is joined intimately to Jesus saying in fulfillment of the scriptures, he thirsts and as he drinks, it is finished. And then he dies. And in his death, we die to sin, to death itself, 
to the concerns of right judgment. And in his resurrection life, we've been raised from the dead and know the life we have in him as joy and salvation and peace. I thirst, he drinks, he bows his head, and he dies. What John gives us as a moment, a snapshot moment, at the center of the history of everything, Mark's gospel gives us in a slightly fuller form, he pulls the picture out a little bit more to tell us that in fact the cup John refers to as the climactic cup is the second cup Jesus is offered. There are two cups at the cross and Mark's gospel tells us a little bit more about this scene so that we will notice the first and then this second cup. Now, Mark's gospel is two books earlier than where you are in John's gospel. Would you flip back a little earlier in your pew Bibles, two books to the gospel of Mark, and I want us to hear how Mark describes this scene. It's going to help us hear what John is saying in his gospel. In Mark chapter 15, this is very close to the end of Mark's gospel. In Mark 15, we can start reading in verse 21. Again, this is our same scene, the crucifixion of Jesus. A little bit more of the information and details uh, as John's snapshot is pulled out a little bit. We start our reading in verse 21 of Mark 15. We read, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his, that is Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand, uh, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, let he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Well, Mark gives us this slightly fuller picture of what John gave us as a moment. And we learn in light of this bigger picture that what John is talking about is in fact the second of two cups offered to Jesus on the cross. But we learn from Mark that Jesus declined the first cup and he received, accepted the second. Why would he do that? What's going on here with two cups being offered to Jesus in connection with his crucifixion? One is declined and the other one is accepted. And it's that second one that is accepted which coincides with Jesus saying, and now it is finished. And he bows his head in full control of himself in submission to his father gives up his spirit and dies. Well, to understand what's going on here, we have to appreciate something, however limited our exploration can be. We have to know something of what this cup, this, this in both cases, wine, what this means in the biblical world Jesus belongs to and in fact reflects him, his person, and his work. We have to know something of how wine functions in the world of Scripture to know what's happening here and why it is such a big deal. In fact, why we can say as we leave today, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a gospel of two cups of wine. A gospel in two cups. Where the victory of his cross and resurrection comes by way of vinegar which is what wine becomes when the fermentation process is allowed to run amok and run free and there, there is no art and science involved in, in when, to, when to stop it, when to enjoy it, when to drink it. If you don't look after it, it becomes vinegar. And that sour wine, which the gospel writers refer to, is wine as it is reaching that stage of bitterness where it's almost, almost past the point of being drinkable. Well... In the world of Scripture, we, we want to note a few important things about wine that will help us here. Firstly, we note God not only permits his people to drink wine, but he tells us quite explicitly he created it for us and he commends it to us. Most famously, maybe, is in Psalm 104 when he tells us quite directly that wine is a gift of his generosity to be enjoyed in his presence. Similar words are found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In fact, God promises to reward his people's obedience with the blessing of an abundance of wine, as in Deuteronomy 7 and 11, also Proverbs chapter 3. In Deuteronomy 11 and 2 Kings 18, the promised land is characterized as a land with the abundance of grain and wine. If that sounds a little bit like the Lord's Supper, it won't be the last time you hear something suggestive of that this morning. God is so far from discouraging the production of wine and of strong drink that he commands, in fact, commands that it be included as a necessary part of the sacrifices that his people offer to him. 
something there to sacrifice from their own family household stores, as in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. Every believer had to offer wine as a necessary part of the sacrificial system. If he didn't produce it himself, he had to purchase it from someone who did. And in Deuteronomy 14, God also requires wine at at least one, if not more, of his regular feasts. He encourages his people to purchase wine and what's translated as strong drink in order, not despite, but in order to rejoice in the presence of the Lord. Now, something we should notice about this blessing, though, is its social or communal nature. The purpose of wine as a gift of God, the purpose of strong drink as well, we learn is to foster joyful fellowship of his people precisely as people, not individual persons. In the Bible, we don't really have a regularization of people drinking alone. Of course, in our country and in some others in the world, when this blessing has been removed entirely from the Lord's table and the family table, it has led to Americans and others regularizing the practice of doing this on their own as a way of escaping the hardships of the world, but in isolation, not in community, which has led to the problem we are all aware of, of real alcoholism. The biblical model for drinking such things, as for other blessings God gives, tend in exactly the opposite direction. This is a gift of the Lord to solidify, not to erode community and family ties through festive gatherings around various common tables. The Lord's table being the principal example of this, the very center of the life of his people. The solemn fact... The tragic fact that abusing this gift is a temptation for many and a reality for too many is not something that subverts the more fundamental truth that like all other abused good gifts, this too is a good gift of God. But we notice now something very specific about what the Bible says about this gift that helps us with John's gospel, helps us, in fact, with the gospel. In Psalm 4, in Psalm 104, in Judges 9, other passages could be mentioned, wine and beer or strong drink are not only good gifts of God, don't miss this, they are given to cheer the hearts of people. That may sound obvious and straightforward. To an extent, it is. But that is not an accident. And that is not superfluous to what makes the gospel the gospel. You'll have to hold on with me for a moment, but remember this. Wine is given to cheer the heart. So the one who enjoys it in 1 Timothy 4, for example, is to do so with thanks to God who cheers the heart and not by abusing God's good gifts. That said, there are some examples in the Old Testament of people who are supposed to abstain 
from enjoying this good gift. Kings, especially in certain circumstances. Priests, especially when they are exercising their office in offerings and sacrifices. And Nazarites, who as a subgroup within Israel bear all the visible marks of being set apart to the Lord. These are all temporary restrictions, but they are divinely given, given by God. And now we want to ask why, if this is a good gift of God, why would these groups, kings and priests especially, why would they have to go through a temporary time where they don't have it? We learn from Leviticus 10, Numbers 6, Proverbs and Isaiah, wine and strong drink are not to be consumed by priests and kings when they are engaged in their official capacities. And we wonder, well, how can that be the case when kings and priests among God's people in Israel are signs of a blessed age to come? And the Old Testament so often describes the coming joys of the Messianic age in terms of the abundance of wine, of all things. Isaiah 25, Isaiah 27, 55, Jeremiah 31, Hosea 2, Joel 2, Joel 3, Amos 9, Zechariah 9, on and on we can go. The age of of promises realized, the age of the Messiah, is a blessed age precisely because it's full overflowing, flooded with good wine. Why then would priests and kings need even temporarily to avoid it if they are signs of that age to come? And if wine is again itself a blessing of God to be enjoyed by the people of God as they complete their work at the end of a work day and when they enjoy contexts of feasting Why would priests never drink wine in God's presence for vocational and symbolic reasons? Well, for the same reason, they're never allowed to sit down as they carry out their offices. There isn't something wrong with sitting down. But there is something important about them not sitting down when they carried out their work at this time. All right, enough rhetorical questions. What does this have to do with John's gospel? And the gospel of vinegar become victory. The gospel of two cups. Two times Jesus is offered wine while on the cross. He refuses the first. He takes the second. Why? The first time comes in Mark 15, 23. They offered him wine, and then we read, mixed with myrrh but he did not take it. There was an old tradition which respected women of Jerusalem, as scholars have noted, respected women of Jerusalem would provide something like a narcotic drink to those who are condemned to death. As an act of mercy and of concern for them, uh, in order to, to blunt, to kind of decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain they are enduring. Out of concern to look for ways to limit their pain and blunt it, they would provide myrrh 
in sour wine as a way of providing a narcotic to blunt the pain of their punishment. When Jesus arrives at Golgotha, this is now at the beginning of our crucifixion scene, he is already a bloodied and beaten man. And he is to be crucified in a horrific and most painful fashion. And as he arrives at Golgotha, he is offered, we read, wine mixed with myrrh, and he refuses it. Why? He refuses it because he chooses instead to endure with full consciousness, with full consciousness, the sufferings appointed for him to bring about your salvation. This first wine represents something Jesus has been tempted with before. Luke 4, Matthew 4, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Three times he is tempted with an offer to bypass the cross and receive a crown, to, to eliminate something of his suffering, to blunt the force of it, uh, and to still enjoy the blessings on the far end of it, still enjoy the kingdoms, still enjoy the power, still enjoy the name, to bypass the cross on the way to a crown. And three times he rejects that temptation. And now, for the last time, he'll reject it once more. Nothing to blunt the pain. He will be in full control of his faculties. He will be utterly and fully conscious to the very end of what his father has called him to do. Because the point of it all is not suffering or not. The point is submission to his father's will. And he is going to entrust himself so fully to his father's will that he will suffer as long as his loving father knows he must to save you and to save me. He treats this first cup as, the, as he treats the temptations of the enemy in the wilderness. It is offering good things. Who doesn't want relief in a time of pain? But when the question is not merely relief or not, but submission to his father's will or not, there is no question. There is no option. I submit myself to the one who has given me this cup to drink, which is not that one. Not one to blunt my suffering. Not one to take away the fullness of my obedience to my Father's will. You remember what he prayed in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. And so when the first cup is offered to blunt the terrible pain of the cross, even just a little, he knows and he submits to his father's knowledge in the infinite perfection of his love for his son of exactly just how much suffering is necessary for your salvation and mine. 
Now, these women who are doing this, presumably it is them in this scene. It could also be some religious leaders who are, if not feeling remorse and regret, at least feeling a little bit of compassion. It could be them as well. We're not told. But this, this exercise, this practice of, of giving someone wine or strong drink when they are going through awful circumstances, that is in fact fully appropriate, indeed biblical. I want us to think about one passage in particular that bears upon the scene at the cross. This is from Proverbs chapter 31. In Proverbs 31, we read this in verses 6 and 7. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. Give wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. This is what God in his word says. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. There's no problem, biblically, generally speaking, with Again, wine is there to cheer the heart by divine design, right? Nothing wrong with cheering the heart that is bowed down, cheering the heart that is broken, that is suffering, uh, that is full of tears. Nothing wrong with extending help, extending cheer to those who badly need it. But we also know that these verses in 6 and 7 in Proverbs 31 follow verses 4 and 5. This is in an overall context where a king is being advised by his mother how to be a good king, how to be a righteous, faithful king. And one of the things the mother says is, do this, give wine, give strong drink to the one who is perishing in bitter distress, give, let them drink, let them forget their miseries no more. But when it comes to him, himself, as a king, she says this, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Why? Why not? This is why. She says this, lest they drink and they forget what has been decreed and thus pervert the rights of all afflicted. Because abuse of this good thing when it's a king who's doing it, can have awful consequences for the ones he is charged to serve. And he might forget that he decreed something that looks after the afflicted, something that provides for the poor. And then who is it that pays for his indulgence in wine and strong drink? Not him, not a hangover in the morning. No, it's the people who go without the things they need for life and sustenance, the protection about matters of injustice. These are the ones who's, who pay the price for him enjoying his wine in the time of his distress. One of the reasons why this king of kings and lord of lords needs to decline cup one is to ensure the fulfillment of justice. To ensure that those afflicted and in need are not overlooked. Because his sacrifice, because his offering of himself secures forever the protection and the preservation of the vulnerable, he will not take a drop of that which would blunt his ability to meet the needs of the needy and to hear their cries and prove to be a good king. It's fine for the people 
but because of the ones he is charged to care for, he will not take this narcotic first cup. Because you need him to be a king who acts justly. You needed him and need him still to be a king who preserves rather than overthrows justice. And when you need him in times of vulnerability, you can take comfort in the fact that he declined the first cup. This offer Jesus refuses, and in doing so chose to endure with full consciousness the sufferings appointed for him. The second time comes in Mark 15, 35. After some bystanders thought he was calling for Elijah. Did you hear that in our reading of Mark 15? Listen to him. He's, he must, maybe he's calling for Elijah. Someone runs and fills a sponge with sour wine, puts it on a reed, on a, on a long stick, a hyssop stick, and gives it to him to drink, saying, saying to one another, wait, let's see if Elijah does come down and then take him off the cross. Let's see what happens. Let's see if Elijah hears this. Give him some wine, and, and that way we'll see if Elijah comes. Well, what does the wine have to do with Elijah's coming? The first wine was mixed with myrrh, a narcotic, to dull Jesus' pain, to keep him from having to endure the fullness of the cross in full consciousness. That wine he refused. This one he receives. This one is not mixed with myrrh. This is the wine given to cheer man's heart in a, with a view to keeping one alive. Keeping the spirit alive. Keeping him aroused and engaged. Keeping him conscious for as long as possible. It's precisely that it's not the myrrh-mixed wine, but the traditional regular sour wine, that it would have the effect, effect of prolonging his pain. That's the wine Jesus drinks. Not the one to dull his pain, but the one to ensure he is alive and alert and conscious for as long as the Father wills that he be so. The reason they're asking, uh, having him drink this wine, maybe Elijah will come, is because they're keeping him alive long enough to see if Elijah will appear. We've got to keep him going, keep him alert, keep him conscious, keep him praying this thing. Maybe Elijah will hear it and come down. Keeping him going means their intention is skewed. But Jesus receives this one to ensure he is submitting to the Father's will and timing. Remember what Jesus said to those who asked him, when, when is the, the last day? When is everything going to be tied up and resolved? When is evil going to end, the kingdom be fully realized? When is the day of your coming? And Jesus says, not even the Son knows this. The Father knows this. Well, what's true in terms of that large-scale timing question, the end of the world, applies as well to this event where the end of the world began. Jesus says, the timing is not mine. The Father knows. I'm going to refuse this cup that will dull my pain. I'm going to take this cup that keeps me alive for as long as the Father wills. And with that last cup drunk, it's as if the Father says, and now, and now the time has come. Other condemned criminals would have taken the first to ease their torment passed on the second so as not to prolong their horrific pain. Jesus takes no shortcuts on the way to your redemption. 
In the garden, he said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, he proves his praying was no empty speech. On the cross, he drinks the wine of the just wrath of God against sinners down to its very dregs. He will not leave a drop in the cup his father gave him so that you will have a different cup. So the cup you receive from and through him will be a cup transformed from vinegar and bitterness and gall to the sweet wine of God's favor and grace, in which he will prove to be the good king who gives wine to those who are perishing so that they remember their misery no more, who gives wine to dull the pains of life in a friction-full fallen world, for God's children of light, who gives wine to encourage the heart, who gives wine to strengthen weak knees and weak faith, and who does so never more conspicuously and never more centrally than when at his table he gives you the bread that represents the utter givenness of his whole life for you, and he gives you a cup that is not the cup he drank, but the cup as it has been transformed by his love for you. The cup he gives you, he has earned and paid for with his very life and death so that what you taste is not bitter, but sweet. So that we will enjoy the wine of the Father's love in fellowship and look forward together to a marriage supper of the Lamb where we live redeemed forever in the glorious presence of our God, we will remember then as we must remember now the glory of the gospel among many other things is this, that this is a king, this is a priest who took no shortcuts in saving us. In fact, what we learn at the cross helps us understand why kings and priests could not partake. Kings and priests could not partake because the whole meaning of their office derived from this one. And though they did not know bitter pain, and though they did not know torment in the execution of their office, the point of their temporary suspension from the cup was to be a picture of the one who would have to decline the cup precisely to make sure the fullness of the suffering is carried out. Not because there's something wrong with wine and kings and priests shouldn't do that, but because they are in the image of the one who in his torment had to say no so that God and the gospel would say yes to you. God be praised for it. And in light of this, let us come with joy and thanksgiving to a table which is now perhaps more meaningfully than ever, the table of the Lord's self-offering, where the bread and the cup come to us in the form they do as means of grace and joy, precisely because they were for him the means of the judgment and suffering he endured for the sins of sinners. In him, vinegar has become victory, and in us we know that victory 
as the sweet and life-giving wine of the gospel of a king like this and a priest like this. Let us pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the beauty, the power, the glory of the gospel. And we ask that as we now approach the table of our loving and faithful Lord, our true King and priest, we pray that we would do so with thankful hearts, stirred by this reminder of what he paid for our sins, what he gave for our redemption. We pray that if anyone here does not know Christ as Savior, that they will reckon with the gospel, which is not only taught from these pages, but put on display at this table. We pray that you would humble hearts to embrace, to rest in, and to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as our only righteousness before you as the only satisfying sacrifice for our sins, the one whom we all utterly need and who is pleased still to forgive sinners and to welcome sinners into his household and to his table. We pray for this, even as we pray that all of us who belong to Christ might have our faith strengthened and enriched by this blessed sacrament as well as their blessed gospel preached from your blessed word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.